Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I am Tamara Nassar. I am joined today by a very special guest, writer and essayist Stephen Salaita. Salaita is the author of eight books, including Uncivil Rights and Internationalism, uh, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. His forthcoming memoir, titled An Honest Living, a memoir of peculiar itineraries will be published by Fordham University Press next month. Uh, Salaita writes of his departure uh, from academia following multiple controversies, which we will talk about later in the show. Um, Salaita is now a professor at the Department of English, Literature, English and Comparative Literature at the American University in Cairo. Stephen, welcome back to the show. I am glad to be speaking with you today. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. Uh, Stephen, your self-published website is a treasure trove of brilliantly written essays, uh, stephensalaita.com, no flags, no slogans. And you wrote one piece um, that I'd like to talk about. It's titled Scrolling Through Genocide. Zionist massacres are live streamed to the masses in high definition and still nobody can stop them. I would like to quote from that piece. Um, it has become clear during the past two months in the Gaza Strip that the Zionist entity is plenty capable of equaling the belligerence of the American frontier, an era of wholesale ethnic cleansing thought to be a feature of history. It could never happen today, people sometimes would foolishly declare. Colonial atrocities of the past, Wounded Knee, Sand Creek, the Trail of Tears, are now everywhere in evidence. The Zionist entity is carrying out a kind of primitive violence with modern technology. This violence fills our computer and television screens. People around the world get minute by minute accounts of massive destruction and widespread murder. Certain images have become horrifyingly familiar throngs of refugees queuing for bread, ambulances dodging tank and machine gun fire, hospitals in disarray, once dense neighborhoods transformed by aerial bombardment into kilometers of rubble. We scroll through photos of men blindfolded and stripped to their underwear, lined up on the ground like antiquities in a museum courtyard. The scrolling continues, into pictures of white body bags in shallow trenches, and then into videos of little girls and boys screaming trauma into the ruins of their childhood. We are perhaps the first generation to witness genocide in real time. History books about the horrors of the past are written every time somebody opens social media. So Stephen, we are in the fifth month of this genocide. You wrote this earlier. Um, We've protested, we've written about it, we've collected testimonies, we, uh, people have gone to the International Court of Justice, we've called our lawmakers, we boycotted. Um, in the case of Jordan, we even tried to approach the border, we tried to get people out, we tried to block major roads and major uh, metropoles, we've come out in the hundreds of thousands, globally in the millions, and the truth of the matter is none of us have been able to stop this madness. It's ongoing. We are forever changed by this. Uh, the world also feels changed by this, but I think 
the scariest part is that it isn't, <laughs> that the world feels in a very dark way, capable of forgetting this, capable of ignoring it, um, capable of inventing even a much worse way to keep executing this. And the reality for Palestinians in Gaza just keeps getting worse and worse day by day. And the bombs have not stopped. Um, I don't know what it is I want to ask you other than to respond and talk about this feeling of helplessness, uh, given that we all somehow believed that maybe being able to see it would mean we would be able to stop it. But that's been proven not to be the case. Yeah, you 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 said it extremely powerfully and movingly. It's I mean, I think you've articulated something that that's been bothering a whole lot of people in in a really profound way. And the way that I'm trying to approach, I don't know if anybody listening would would find it helpful. And, uh, to some degree, we resigned ourselves to the reality that you know we're doing what we can do in the day to day, what we what we think might help, but short of entering into to Gaza and taking up arms. You, it, it just seems like a bunch of bullshit. That, that's what it very often feels like. But it, it is, I, I try to remember that it is important to document and to speak and to make sure that people aren't allowed to get too comfortable. And we're writing history in our own way when we, we condemn this genocide, when we refuse to let the Zionist narrative go unchallenged when we hold our our supposed allies accountable and tell them this isn't good enough you need to do better again none of this stuff is physically going to stop the genocide but there is still a world outside of the genocide that needs to reckon with what is happening inside of gaza and that's what our role can be another thing that I don't want to say that anything positive is, is ever going to come out of this. I, I don't see anything potentially positive in, 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 in the future. All I see is a lot of death and, and suffering, immeasurable suffering, um, incomprehensible suffering. But I hope it will allow more people to embrace the very evident reality that all of these narratives about Western democracy and Western free speech that they might have believed or in a lot of cases repeated in various ways is a whole lot of bullshit. It doesn't exist. There is no democracy. If there were, if there were democracy in any Western country, its government would have been held, their governments would have been held to account already. Obviously, there's no democracy in the Zionist entity. That that's out of the question now. Um, anybody who says that moving forward is not a serious human being, and this is is more likely a ghoul. But we cannot rely or put our lives in the hands of civic institutions, in the hands of politicians, 
they've all turned their backs on us. AOC turned her back on Palestinians. Bernie Sanders turned his back on Palestinians. Um, the U.S. government writ large has turned its back on Palestinians. So you think about all the energy and all the effort people have put into these institutions as some sort of guarantor of democracy or some sort of guarantor of just the, the basic right to live has has ended up being wasted. And it's it's hard to think about. It's hard to come to terms with. But we must. Right? We, we, we cannot look towards, you know, the, the usual civic institutions, NGOs, uh, you know, elections, um, these sorts of things. Those days are done. Our lives are in our hands and our ability to live is staked on our relationships with with one another, not on governments, not on um, politicians, not on, on anything. Gaza has proved that a lot of people thought it before, but now it's it's beyond doubt that the world has raised its voice. The world has condemned what the Zionist entity is doing and not a single politician in a position of authority has lifted a finger to stop it. And in fact, rather than stopping it, they have uh, aided it and abetted it and funded it and justified it. And so we have to be serious now. What, where does that leave us? What options do we have? I don't have the answers at, at, at the moment. Um, I, a lot of the answers are, are emerging and will continue to emerge from Gaza itself. But I do know where we cannot look anymore. And that is at the, the, the civic institutions that claim to be focused on human rights and democracy, because quite clearly everybody was lied to. That's right. And I think um, you make a very good point about US politicians, but I would go a step further and say that the lines that have been emboldened um, ever since this started uh, have made things a lot clearer. Um, Americans will be heading to the voting booths in November to elect a new US president. Of course, um, the sitting president has now been come to you know has now come to be known as Genocide Joe or Butcher Biden. Uh, he can hardly make a public appearance without being protested, protested or heckled or uh, shouted at. Um, and while Biden and his Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, can hide behind the theater of feeling sorry and diplomacy and to give the illusion that the United States is trying to broker a ceasefire. Um, in reality, the United States is waging this genocide on Palestinians, even if the airstrikes on Gaza are being carried out by Israeli hands. It is the United States only that um, holds the power to seize the supply of weapons to Israel at any moment, forcing an end to this genocide. Um, the Biden administration, to put it very plainly and very simply, is an enemy of the Palestinian people. And we're at, we're at a point where 
the Gaza Strip is just co completely unrecognizable than it looked like before. 80% of the infrastructure and the buildings have been either completely destroyed or damaged. Um, the and still, the Biden administration and its mouthpieces, like you mentioned, AOC, uh, the Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, are already trying to gaslight people, not just Arab Americans, uh, but you know all kinds of self-described progressives and liberals in the United States into voting for Biden uh, because scary orange man Donald Trump. And uh, you wrote about this. You wrote about, um, you touched on the uh, Arab American community You said in a, in a piece um, that's titled Arab Americans Won't Be Shamed Into Voting for Joe Biden. And I'm going to quote you again because you're just a brilliant writer and everyone should go to your website and read your work for themselves. But... Um, you, you write, no matter what individual Arab Americans choose to do in the privacy of the voting booth or from the privacy of our homes, the tired and tiresome tactic of lesser evil browbeating in public discourse will not persuade us to forget about Palestine. Tell us about reproductive rights all you want. We know about the women in Gaza who endured C-sections without anesthesia. Tell us about the future of our children all you want. We've already seen the dead babies in abandoned incubators. Tell us about loan relief all you want. We've already counted the billions this government sends to Israel. Um, and you write some more and then you say, tell us about big bats carry Trump all you want. Nobody in this moment looks more callous and evil than Joseph R. Biden. And while this is very clear and the genocide is not even over, uh, we see, you know, leading um, progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, she she went on a on a podcast uh, called "I've Had It," and it's just it's it's two you know ladies who um, in, in, a, in a more casual setting who interviewed her and. Uh, you know, they, they ask her the question, they say, Joe Biden um, hit it or had it, and she very enthusiastically says, hit it, and she says, you know, there are plenty of things that the president has done that I disagree with, but, you know, almost, you know, and she, she says at the end of the day, you know, brushing off her, like, fleeting mention of an active genocide that this president is waging, she says, at the end of the day, we just have to be adults in the room and uh, we cannot allow this fascist government uh, movement to grow in this country. Um, and she verbatim says that the decision to vote for Biden, quote, is not a difficult one for me. So there's, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to ask you to make speculations and predictions. I think like you know, there's all sorts of things can happen between now and November. Um, we can, you, you know, we can speculate until our eyes turn blue. I don't think it's useful. The Democrats can even come up with a new front runner from their genie hats before before it's time. So um, who knows what will happen? But do you think 
that the lesser evil argument will go far enough for Biden or is the mask completely off? Because, I mean, and ultimately I'd like to mention that this is, you know, I'm aware that we're having this conversation and to anyone in the global South who's listening, ultimately the difference between Republican and Democrat is the difference between a wolf in wolf's clothing and a wolf dressed as a sheep. It does not matter how you dress it. The empire and its blood trail um, has been tightening its noose around this globe for as long as anyone can remember. But if we were to entertain this inside baseball here for a second, what are your thoughts on this? Um, What are the stakes? Because it seems that the Democrats never learn their lesson, so. Well, I, 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 I want to apologize before I get going, both both to you, Tamara, and and to our listeners, because I, I, I'm feeling rather an urge to rant, and um, you know, some sometimes that 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 urge is is difficult to hold back. I, I even was writing some notes as you were talking, like so. I'm, I'm putting an outline to my rant. Um, <laughs> I want to make sure I get all the points because I, you're really getting to the meat of things, and and I don't know. I I have. I have a lot to say about it, uh, so I'll try to be concise and and organized and, and maybe even articulate. I, I I have no ability to do election prognostication, and and not many people, even people who've made you know a significant sum of money doing election prognostication, you know, have proved not very good at it. You know, Nate, Nate Silver and all those dorks, right? They you know they they didn't anything else, anything more than just your average person, you know, uh, shopping in Walmart. But um, I, I, I do have a pretty strong feeling as regards the Arab and Muslim American communities. I, I don't think they're going to be convinced. Um, I, I, it'll be inter- I'm interested to see what uh, Rashida Talib will do in October, whether she's going to start uh, caping for Biden or not, and whether she holds out and, and you know, decides not to endorse him. Or whether she, you know, uh, concedes and ends up endorsing him as the election approaches. I, I don't know what she's going to do, but I think that will have some effect on, you know, the, the Arab community and, and the Arab American community in, in Southeast Michigan. But I think, by and large, there I'm seeing a type of anger in in the community and a, a, a type of seriousness about not granting this man their vote that seems. It, it seems serious to me, you know, that that I, I, I've been telling the story of, of, you know, my parents, both immigrants and, you know, my mom is a real, you know, rah-rah American democracy, you must vote type, you know, she, she would take me into the um, voting booth when I was a little kid, you know, to, you know, she's one of those immigrants for whom democracy is sacrosanct and, you know, you, you have to vote and, and all of this sort of stuff. She's sitting out the election altogether. And she's not changing her mind. And this is the first time she's done that ever since she became a U.S. citizen. My dad, I would 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 classify as a leftist. All right, um, you know, uh, he's kind of been a reliable Democratic voter his his entire life, but he's, you know, he's to the left of the Democrats. I think on 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 most issues, uh, he's he's planning to vote for Trump, and he's voting for Trump for one reason and one reason only, and that is to spite Joe Biden. 
I, I can practically see the white liberals pulling their hair out right now. We're about to have a conniption. Well, you. Okay, we don't care what you think. That's his logic. And he's not the only one, right? And and I'm not saying I agree with that logic or disagree with it. I'm explaining the logic that exists. You can accept it or not accept it. I mean, that's just the way it is. Now, for me, I, I, I think that I would encourage, you know, my parents and, and the, the rest of the community to consider not voting altogether. I, I think that my mom has the right idea of, of sitting out the election. I don't think that voting is sacrosanct and it should not be considered sacrosanct. In the United States, it's largely a waste of time. If you feel like some sort of civil obligation to vote, fine, go write in a third party candidate, right? You know, write in your amul. Do you know what I mean? Uh, write in somebody. Uh, you've, you've fulfilled your civic obligation and then move on with your life. But if at this point you, you, you think that it seriously matters in relation to Palestine generally and Gaza specifically, then you're an absolute mark. And you need to get over the foolishness at this point. Really, we have thousands of, of children dying a week. Uh, there's no more time for, for, for nonsense and, and for fantasies of U.S. redemption or U.S. democracy. It's time to get serious. Enough of this. We, we've been being good little citizens for decades and decades and decades. And all it has gotten us are successive administrations that are even worse on Palestine. Ronald Reagan, for Christ's sake, was better on Palestine than Joe Biden. Ronald Reagan. All right, Richard Nixon was better on Palestine than 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 Joe Biden, right? And Obama. Okay, so we we're not going to vote. Not only we're we not going to vote out of this this horrible situation that we're in. We're not going to vote genocide out. We're not even going to mitigate genocide through voting. Make whatever decision you want, but you have to bear that in mind, and you have to take that reality seriously. And I know it's a hard reality for a lot of people to accept, but. That is the, the the reality, and 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 I don't, don't think it does anybody any good to pretend anymore that we have a voice and we have a say in how this government makes its decisions because obviously we don't. The, the numbers are there. We're, you know, Democrats are overwhelmingly against this genocide and overwhelmingly in favor of of a ceasefire, and that's quite simply not matched by any of the leadership and even the leaders who claim you know, to be anti-genocide or, or pro-ceasefire or, you know, they're they're caping for Biden. So, you know, whatever they say, in effect, they're they're continuing to support the genocide because, as you say, he's the one overseeing it. Now, AOC, I, I, have, a, I have a few things to say about this, and I, I, I hope I hope everybody will forgive, will forgive my saltiness. But, you know, I, I ran out of patience a long time ago. When AOC won her primary, I don't know what, 2018, 2019, I don't remember, but before she was actually seated in, in, in Congress, when she won the Democratic primary, which pretty much ensured that, that she would win the congressional seat because there was no Republican challenger worth mentioning, she gave an interview, you know, a few days after that primary where, you know, she started doing some wishy-washy bullshit about Palestine. I picked up on it. I wrote a post just transcribing what she had said and left it there. And I got absolutely dogpiled by everybody, right? Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there was a principle there. And I want to reemphasize that principle with apologies to those who already are aware of this principle and practice it. When a politician or a celebrity activist or a celebrity academic or, or somebody in some sort of position of power, uh, materially or, or discursively, chose what we all recognize to be 
some iteration of soft Zionism. And some of us get mad and get wary and become mistrustful. It's not because we're purists. It's not because we're assholes. It's because we've seen it a million times and we know exactly what the hell that means. That's only a prelude to going full mask at some time in the future. Bernie Sanders. I got absolutely demolished by our community, the Arab American community, the Palestine solidarity community back in 2015 because he was saying some liberal Zionist shit. And I said, this ain't going to cut it. He needs to stop. Or we need to quit pretending, you know, that this man is, is, is George Habash, right? He's a liberal Zionist who has some good economic policies. But, but cut out all the myth-making, please. All this Amor Bernie shit. Like, come on. This is ridiculous. I got killed. And anybody who was there witnessed, you know, just, just, just how much I got piled on. Everybody's writing articles. Uh, you know, Steve is a purist. Steve is Well, what happens when the genocide? The point is when somebody shows themselves to be a Zionist, it's only when shit hits the fan and when stuff really matters, you're going to see what side they take, right? When the bombs start flying and there's a choice to make, they're going to make the choice. So I take absolutely no pleasure in calling out people's soft Zionism or their liberal Zionism or their wishy-washiness. But it's only because I know, just like so many of us know, that there's going to come a moment of truth. And in that moment of truth, they ain't going to choose you, no matter how much you have chosen them. People need to be aware of that. We're seeing that with AOC, right? She made it evident before she even sat in her congressional seat that she was going to sell Palestine down the river. She made it clear. What did she do? She sold Palestine down the river, all right? Bernie told us over and over and over again that, that his loyalty ultimately lies with some variation of a Jewish state. Genocide happens. Whose side does he take? Not yours. All right. Uh, you know, your uncle probably, real uncle probably would have taken your side, but I'm Bernie. He didn't. He took the side of the genocide heir. So all of this is, a, I, I'm going to wrap up, I promise. All of this is a, a roundabout way of saying that what you're seeing now in Gaza is a culmination right, of a process wherein the depth of people's Zionist sensibilities are being made manifest. And you cannot make the same mistake again. Somebody starts peddling some soft Zionism to you, record it in your head, and be aware that this person is not to be trusted. That in the moment of truth, this person is not going to take your side. That this person is going to take the side of the settler colony. They make it manifest every time they peddle some of the nonsense that we've all heard a million times. We know how to identify it. All right. We, we could make a list right now. And as pertains to Biden and lesser evilism, what, 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 what lesser evil? What 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 is more evil than what's going on in in Gaza? I don't even want to 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 entertain this nonsense. I, this you know, liberals, white liberals, particularly Zionist liberals, especially, they just need to mind their own business. We're watching our our people be genocided. We're watching our families getting killed and living in tents and and starving to death. We don't care what you have to say. We, we, you can not tell us anything that will possibly be meaningful to us. And I don't want to hear anything about uh, Biden's anguished genocidal decision-making. That's a whole lot of co coordinated nonsense, you know, uh, 
you know, insider journalists, you know, who work for the corporate press, taking their talking points from inside the White House and inside the State Department. These are always bullshit stories. And it doesn't even matter. He sh I mean, I, I want him to be anguished. <laughs> I want him to go to bed feeling like shit every night. I want him to go to bed suffering. But he's not. Because you can look back at Joe Biden's record, and he's always been terrible. You know, it's not like this is a new phenomenon. There, there's nothing in Joe Biden's record anywhere right, in his long career as, as a politician, as a senator and a vice president and a president that would suggest that he would do even uh, a minimally good thing for a downtrodden community or for the oppressed. It simply doesn't exist in, in, in his record. And so if somebody wants to tell us you know, those of the, the Palestinian di diaspora or those of us who have voting rights in the United States that we're morally morally obliged or politically obliged to choose the, the, the lesser evil, then I'll say fine. Then I'm morally morally obliged and politically obliged to sit out the election altogether. Um, 100% everything that you just said. And with Rashida Tlaib, I would just like to point out that, I mean, pertaining to her and Sanders and AOC, there's always this, like you said, you get piled on immediately at the mildest criticism of what they say and do as if they are the most vulnerable tokens that we have, when in reality, when it you know what what it comes down to is that they are U.S. politicians, they are U.S. lawmakers, they are some of the most powerful people in the world. They sit in the most powerful halls in the world, um, and this language of Hamo Bernie and like uh, you know with with Plabe, like being Palestinian, it's just all it does is create this pseudo familiarity between these people, these very powerful people and the general public that makes it impossible to criticize them no matter what they say. And, you know, Glenn Greenwald said something about AOC when she when she went on that podcast. He said that he said it's wild how in four short years uh, AOC went from branding herself as a major threat to the Democratic Party to becoming without hyperbole the most valuable tool activist and spokesperson spokesperson for the Democratic Party. And I think that's extremely true because when you have, when you are shielded by your own followers um, constantly from any criticism, how can you ever be pushed? These people only ever listen when you push them. They don't listen when you take crumbs. They don't listen when you cite that one time they said something mildly satisfactory and you know five years ago it, do, it does not matter i mean aoc follows every single one of her you know atrocious like after she did that podcast you know she she goes she goes on the house floor and she says you know three sentences to appease to people and they you know they take it but Tlaib actually last week said something i think unforgivable on the house floor um, they were discussing 
they were debating resolution uh, 966, which purports to condemn, quote, rape and sexual violence committed by Hamas in its war against Israel. Um, and instead of challenging that, Rashida Tlaib gave credence to Israel's fabricated atrocity propaganda, which we have, you know, the Electronic Intifada and several other publications, including uh, Monda Weiss and the Gray Zone have, um, have uh, dismantled and shown to, you know, showed to be just fabricated atrocity uh, propaganda and a deliberate campaign of lies designed to justify Israel's genocide against Palestinians. And, you know, she says, I'm quoting here, all acts of sexual violence are horrific. We should all be fighting to end it here at home and all around the world. So while the resolution on the floor today rightfully denounces any sexual violence by Hamas, I am disturbed that it completely ignores and erases any sexual violence and abuse committed by the Israeli forces against Palestinians, especially children. So I don't know what's going on in the Shida Tlaib's head. I don't know if she's aware of this being a deliberate campaign of lies and propaganda, and she thinks she has to accept it in order to talk about Israeli sexual violence against Palestinian prisoners. But this is, to me, completely unforgivable. unforgivable and uh, my colleague Ali Abunama wrote about it. Uh, still no retraction from Rashida Tlaib. And if it's literally spreading atrocity propaganda, helping spread it, um, helping cement it on the House floor when there is like zero challenge to it. Um, yeah. If I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I, I don't know. I, I I agree with you. I agree with 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 Ali. Um, you know, everybody at DI has done an absolutely absolutely phenomenal job at, at debunking. You know these these deeply ingrained propaganda claims, and so the, the the work you all are doing is has been invaluable. You know, I we were talking earlier about how we feel helpless and there's nothing we can do, but I, I think correcting these stories and challenging this propaganda in the way that the people at EI have is, is supremely important and, and it has a lasting effect, not only in the way that we understand what's going on, but for the historical record as well, it's going to be deeply important. But I, I don't know what Rashida's, I don't know what her calculus is. And I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, you know, to, to speak from her position without knowing everything that that's happening you know to her life uh, privately and and professionally but i i would suggest that if she is doing it if she is saying these things because she actually believes them then she she needs to start reading ei you know i <laughs> I, I i i know that i get the sense from the past few years that um she's not the biggest fan of of that publication all right uh you know, uh, I think there's been some evidence to suggest that she's not the biggest fan of Ali in in, in particular. She wasn't in the past, but um, she needs to she needs to educate herself. I mean, she's a congressperson, but if she is doing it just to play politics, right? Uh, and either option is viable. I really have no idea. Then I, I would say that the only honorable thing to do is to leave that genocidal institution that you call the U.S. Congress, so you can then be free to speak the way that you need to speak and the way that you want to speak. I don't think any Palestinian 
anywhere in, in the world ought to make themselves beholden to institutions that make us in any way complicit with genocide. Better to leave the institution. She's a congressperson. She's famous. There are a million different ways that, that, that she can make a living. But, uh, you know, if, if my employer told me, you know, you have to soft sell resistance or you have to disavow resistance or you have to, um, you know, you have to spread atrocity propaganda under the guise of, of pious concern for, you know, the victims of, of sexual violence, then I, I would walk. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and we, I mean, it's easier for her to make that choice. But so whatever the case, whatever the case, I, I don't think that there is any justification for getting onto the House floor and spreading this sort of atrocity propaganda for, you know, uh, for calling for increased sanctions and U.S. aggression on Syria, for, um, you know, for doing all of the things that a U.S. politician is obliged to do. Over the years, people have said, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, they need to do such and such to keep their job. It's like, okay, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm not disputing that. Of course, people, especially in the professions, especially in government, need to say or not say certain things in, in order to keep their jobs. Well, why are their jobs so precious? What? So? Don't keep the job then. And that never enters into anybody's like mentality. It's like, well, you know, they need to do this to keep their job. Well, why do they need to keep their job? No, I mean it. They, they're not going to go hungry. All right. There are a million things that, that there's a million things Ilhan Omar or AOC or, or Rashida Tlaib can do. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to go drive a school bus. They're, they're not going to become a welder. Do you know what I mean? They, they have plenty of things that, that, that they can do to put food on the table and, and, and to continue living a, a professional life and an influential life, a life where you get to go around and talk to people and and, and, and they pay you money and listen to you. So I, I, I just, yeah, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying I agree with you that, that, you know, I can understand the strategic reasons and perhaps the rationale, right, for going onto the House floor and, and saying these things. And I certainly can appreciate the extraordinarily difficult position that she and, and other progressive politicians are, are in, you know, they're, they're just, you know, they're getting censored, they're, you know, they're, they're being abused, they're, they're being picked on, they're being targeted. I mean, it's a horrible situation for them, and nobody should go through that. But I think given all of those factors, I think, uh, I, I think it's better just to step away as a form of protest and say this institution that I'm serving, even though I'm trying to serve it with, with dignity and compassion, is inherently genocidal. Nothing I say or do is making a difference, and therefore I must leave it and focus my energies in 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 in, in ways where I don't feel like I'm in any way complicit with what the U.S. government is doing. Right, but this would have to also fundamentally embolden the line between um, the principles and the morals that they claim to have and. Ultimately, the climbing the greasy political ladder, which uh, AOC seems to be doing. Um, AOC may care or may have cared in the past about specific issues, but it doesn't seem that she cares about anything more than climbing that ladder and uh, has, you know, in any case, um, 
I do agree with you completely that sometimes the most powerful thing one can do is to risk it all in order to make a very specific point. Like you said, none of these people are going to starve. None of these people are going to have to drive a school bus. And the censorship against, you know, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar uh, are nothing compared to the censorship against ordinary people who lose their jobs and get deplatformed uh, for saying very basic things about uh, about Palestinian rights and uh, criticizing Zionism and get smeared as anti-Semites and they lose their jobs and they lose careers and they have to switch gears. Um, so yeah, this is the moment. Everybody needs to take a stand in their own way, in whatever ways is, is appropriate for their circumstances, period. No one in history is going to look back and think, oh, AOC had to do that in order for her to remain in the in Congress and then eventually, you know, go to the Senate. No one, no one remembers politicians that way. They remember you for the stance that you take. They don't remember you for the very strategic uh, move that you did in order to, you know. So, um, I mean, I think this is a good way to segue into uh, your upcoming memoir. Um, because some people do lose their jobs and have to drive a bus. <laughs> and um, so, Stephen, in 2014, you were fired by the University of Illinois Champaign uh, for social media posts criticizing um, Israel's assault on Gaza at the time, uh, during which Israel was killing 11 children per day over 51 days. And uh, you sued the university for breach of contract, uh, alleging that administration uh, uh, officials acted under pressure from pro-Israel donors. And soon after, you were targeted again uh, by the lawsuit against the American Studies Association. And after, I think it was three um, public academic controversies, you left academia. Um, and your upcoming memoir, which will be published by Fordham University Press next month, titled An Honest Living, a memoir of peculiar itineraries, um, chronicles that journey. Uh, when you left academia, you started publishing your essays on your website, Stephen Salaita, and your very first essay on the website in February 2019 is also titled An Honest Living. Uh, and it's about that departure and uh, your journey into uh, becoming a school bus driver, uh, the delivery of uninjured children, as you described it. And uh, I'd like to read a very short, um, it's not that short, it's a bit short. Um, excerpt from that piece and then I um, uh, would like you to you know you're now back to teaching at the American University of Cairo so you're you kind of returned uh, to academia um, okay so you write becoming a school bus driver wasn't random I used to be a professor I rushed my way into academe 
in fact, landing on the tenure track as a public regional university straight out of grad school. I put in a good effort to make it happen, but the career felt manifest. My father taught physics at, at an HBCU in Southern West Virginia, and my earliest memories involved following him to work, chalk dust and textbooks, intoxicating my emergent senses. Prof, he called me with booming approval, his breath warm with pistachio and nicotine. I earned the moniker by disappearing into my room for hours and validated it by becoming my father's unqualified research assistant. At some point during my childhood, the nickname became a decree. I went to college at 17, knowing I would never leave. 21 years later, I got fired. Now I can't return. So you have returned, and I would like you to tell me more about this upcoming memoir. And given your long and meditative departure from academia all these years, um, how has the return to the classroom been? Uh, I, I mean, I can imagine how for someone like you who imagined your entire life remaining in the classroom, uh, most, you know, as, as a student for the first parts of your life and then as a professor for the latter part and being embroiled in so many public controversies about it, um, I'd like to hear more about that. And I, you know, despite it being an American university, you're not in the US and uh, you're in Cairo, and I am very curious to, to hear about the felt difference there from your perspective, what it's like to be a professor in Cairo. Sure, I'm, I'm happy and, and, and honored to talk about it. Thank you. I mean, it's on the one hand, uh, difficult to, to have a, a, a book coming out you know, uh, concurrent to all of this horror, but, you know, so much of what's in the book really has to do with, with what's going on in Palestine and the way what's going on in Palestine reverberates out into the world and, you know, into Palestinian communities, uh, you know, especially as they exist in, in the West. And so I'm, I'm going to try my best, you know, as, as the book becomes available, in, in a week or two, really, to, to you know, to, to keep the emphasis on on Palestine as our moral and intellectual center, I think that that's you know that's that's critical. Um, but yeah, it's just really because um, you know in 2014 when you know that that infamous firing happened, and, and can I just say because I. You know, I don't go on on, on many of these uh, like podcasts or or whatever. Um, it's it, it's a joy to do it with 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 you all. I'm I'm such an enormous fan of um, of, of of EI. Um, it's it's a treat for me. Please don't call it an unhiring. People always be calling it he was unhired. Like what the hell is an unhired? That drives me crazy. Sorry, I have to get that pet peeve off my chest. Like that just I I, I get a little bit ragey when I say Salido was unhired and do that. I was fired. It's okay to say it. I don't need any euphemisms. In fact, I'm quite proud of it. Uh, you know, it's 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 a badge of honor. You know, to 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 you know to to have been fired for taking up for Palestinians. So, yeah, so it all really starts with um, 
you know, putting your heart and your mind in in Palestine and, and thinking alongside the people there and listening to them and really trying to convey points of views and, and sensibilities that certainly they're not all always going to agree with. Uh, there's, there's plenty of disagreement there, but uh, that maybe at least make them feel like they're being heard. And that uh, you know their sensibility is is not necessarily their politics, but their sensibility is is being conveyed because that sensibility doesn't mesh well right, with the discursive norms in the West, in in the United States and Canada particularly. Uh, really, ultimately, it's true in France and Germany and the UK. But um, you know, and so you know, I got fired. It ended up being a huge news story um it, it, it seems like many lifetimes ago um ended up at aub the zionists interfered there i ended up out of a job there the circumstances were different but the, the result was the same and but i came back to the us and wasn't doing anything and you know i, I won a settlement from the university of illinois in at the end of 2015 more than about a year and a half after the firing happened and you know, I mean, just the, the money was starting to run out. We were living in the D.C. suburbs um, after having left Beirut and, you know, with rent and, and food and everything else. Like the money goes quickly. Your savings go quickly and realize, OK, I, you know, I got to do something, you know. And so you know, I, I decided to drive the school bus. Um, it was always something that ever since I'd returned to the United States, I kept seeing the signs around uh, town were hiring for, for a school bus driver. And I thought, you know, this isn't bad because the last thing I wanted to do was deal with with bureaucracy and, and uh, professional environments. I, I mean, to be frank, I was I was very angry and, and, and bitter and depressed and, you know, not feeling very sociable. And I, I just couldn't have pictured myself um, interacting with other people in a so-called white collar environment. I, the, the, doing like academic conferences and panels and this sort of thing was just out of the question. I just wasn't interested in that kind of stuff at that point. And I thought that driving the school bus would allow me to, to work in a meaningful way. And in a way also where, where I had sort of freedom not to be monitored all the time. I would be in my own little movable world and that's what ended up happening. And the um, the pandemic ended up disrupting everything. All of the transportation got grounded. And so the same kind of malaise and, and depression set in. And I was, I was really struggling with those things. I was having a difficult time feeling, you know, feeling useful in this world. And, you know, I, I didn't think that I would ever go back into the academic world. Um, it, it had seemed so long you know, before it had been years since, since I'd had anything to do with it. And I knew, of course, that I was never going to get a job in, in North America. And I still won't ever get a job in, in North America. I've, I've come to grips with that. That's, that's a reality that I can't change. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm, I can finally say that I'm okay with that. But there's a little bit of a principle involved also. It's like, you know, the, the giant Zionists are hell-bent on making sure that I never get into a classroom again. And so just as a matter of principle, I, I kind of wanted to. But when something came open in, in Cairo and I saw the, the job ad really quite by chance, um, it just felt right. I, I wanted to come work in, in the Arab world. And being in the Arab world, despite the fact that I'm at a U.S. institution that you know, has close ties to the State Department that gets a lot of its funding from USAID. You know, it's it's a very sort of establishment uh, institution, but it's I, I honestly couldn't imagine um, being in 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 the U.S. 
you know, during this, this genocide. I, I just don't really want to be around Americans. I, I, I don't want to be around Brits and Germans or Canadians either. So, you know, and I, I don't want to be um, exclusive. I, it just, it's important to be around my own people, to hear the language, to hear the rage. Egypt is in a bad situation politically. We all know that it's its government is 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 full throttle Zionist and is suppressing any any kind of of dissent. You know, Jordan and Egypt always sort of get matched up together. You know, as as the the, the two worst collaborators. I guess there's also the UAE. We can't forget them in Saudi either. I mean, you know, to be fair, but um, but still, the the energy on the street and on campus and in the classroom is is very devoted to Palestine's liberation, and so there really is a sense of community after October seventh um, last semester. We just departed from the syllabus in all of my classes, and we discussed Palestine. You know, we started reading about Palestine. We we, we started uh, having conversations about Palestine. Uh, we were thinking together about Palestine. We were mourning together. There's Palestinian imagery all over campus and and all over town. And I, I know, I know, you can say, well, imagery is imagery. It's not doing anything, and that's true. But at least you know you're in a place where people are feeling the same way that that you're feeling and that you can express yourself around them whether they agree with you or not in a way that's completely verboten in the the united states like one of the funniest things about looking at u.s social media is the way that something that would sound completely commonplace in the arab world is is taken as something like mortifying you know on anglophone twitter right in in, in, the, in the west it it's good not to feel bound to the norms of what's considered civility in in the United States, and so I've been hardened, you know, by the fact that uh, Egyptians from different social strata. But I'm mostly dealing with the middle and upper classes, of course, at at, at AUC. But they are they're they're very devoted to Palestine's liberation. You know, they're they're very staunchly anti-Zionist, um, and 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 they have a, a strong consciousness about it and they they see it in lots of ways as their issue as well i I'm, I'm, i know i'm talking a lot but that that's kind of you know so going back into the classroom in the arab world has has been has been different most almost all of our students are are from egypt and so i'm i'm, I'm learning a lot about um a new country and and i'm not feeling like i need to look over my shoulder constantly or I, I don't feel like uh you know that that you know uh, you know I'm gonna uh, say something that is is taken the wrong way and then then uh manipulated and then, then sort of thrown back in my face that's gonna result in in some huge public controversy of course anything's gonna happen anywhere um Egypt is no bastion of freedom but 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 generally speaking it's it's been the return has been really nice but I, i'm still getting i'm still getting accustomed to it i i i'm there there are some things about academe that i'm simply never going to be able to reacclimate to you know that are just you know that, that i'm just not going to be able to make myself care about no matter how much i try that's beautiful i yeah i I was in Amman for the first half of this, and um, 
it, it's so strange to be around a whole city of people who don't think about this. It, life goes on. They live normal lives. Uh, it's, it's almost divided the world to me between people who can carry on during this and uh, compartmentalize it in their mind and carry on or maybe are, do not even need to compartmentalize it. It's just uh, a fact of life for them. And those yeah. who are just, you know, who have like a permanent soreness in their stomach, unable to carry on just thinking about this and feeling so helpless. And I'm glad that you're around the latter group of people. Um, Stephen, thank you very much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. It was wonderful to have you. It's always so great to hear from you. And we would love to have you again. It's my pleasure and honor. And I, and I would love to come back sometime. Thank you. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.